So, um, as a result of the talk last week, we got a lot of um, bunch of questions that I've been asked to uh, address. For those who weren't here last week, I'll just run over really quickly. We were, uh, the talk was about looking for love in all the wrong places. That's a song, right? And it deals with this uneasiness that we feel in, in our life. If you are living a life of real understanding, and we're talking about a spiritual understanding, and you are living true to your actual nature, your eternal spiritual nature, your life will, you will experience peace, you will experience happiness, and you will taste the most profound and amazing taste of spiritual love. If you are not existing in that state, it fundamentally means that we're doing some things wrong, that we've adopted ideas that are very pervasive. It's not like just few individuals. It's kind of like almost the entire humanity has adopted ideas that are fundamentally incorrect. One of the deepest and most profound needs that all living beings experience is the desire to both love and to be loved. But the conclusion of, of last week's talk was that you will not find this in another personality in this world. And it is wrong of you to put that burden on somebody else to expect that they will fulfill your need for love, to both love and to be loved. That's not even a possibility. There is an actual reason for it. And it has to do with the ultimate, ultimate experience of the word yoga, which is a divine spiritual harmony. The reason that we feel drawn to love and to be loved is because it's part of our inherent spiritual nature. And we will only be fulfilled in that area in connection with something much more wonderful than ourselves and a few other people that we know or bump into or have relationships in this world. There is this need for us to reconnect with the actual Lord of our heart. The yogis used to address this um, experience as the, the Lord Paramatma, the Supreme Soul and seek to reconnect, reconnect. So that was pretty much the, the essence of last week. But then um, Ivishwar, who's on the Gold Coast today, 
for a couple of weeks. He um, had some questions thrown in at him, which he's passed on to me. One of them was, well, what then is the relationship between the individual soul, this supreme soul that we spoke of, and, and others, other, other individuals? What should be the nature of that relationship? What should be the nature of my relationship with, with others in this world? <clears throat> is it okay, someone asked, is it okay to have loving relationships with someone other than this supreme soul or Paramatma? And does having a relationship with this supreme soul mean I cannot love anyone else? Of course, that has to do with, can I love my wife? Can I love my children or my husband? And, and how does that all fit? In, in the entire spectrum of, of yoga and yoga philosophy and teachings, we have two paths of yoga that are actually quite different than the others. This is the path of karma yoga and the path of bhakti, bhakti yoga. The other yoga paths actually required, required you to um, live a life somewhat isolated from others. This was part of the actual experience, the Ashtanga yoga process, even somebody that was deeply involved in jnana yoga, uh, sankhya yoga, they, they lived a life quite separated from others. And there was this tremendous internal focus, seeking to become free from the entanglement of material life, which was understood to be actually not a, a very pleasant experience overall. There's, uh, yeah, there's highs. There's also lows, and it doesn't really end on a high note for most people. Death is not considered a high note. It's for most people, it's, you know, it's, a, it's pretty down there in terms of life experiences. And, and you will experience that if you actually took time out to assist someone who was going through that experience. It's, it's really an eye-opening experience, and it's actually very good for us. Um, of course, it's, it's fantastic when you know what you're doing, when you understand, and you can reach out and support and help and guide someone through that experience. When it is done properly, I'll just, since I've raised it, when it's done properly, it's an exceedingly amazing experience. It is absolutely transcendentally awesome if it is done correctly. So getting back to where we were, one of the differences with the process of karma yoga and bhakti yoga was that there was this desire to not, an, it wasn't just a desire, it was an, the offering of an opportunity to live in this world and yet come to a transcendental position, 
to have a transcendent experience, to attain self-realization and God-realization, even while living within this world in, in, in ways in which everybody is familiar. So one of the reasons that it was so potent and powerful is because it followed a, a basic principle. If I take iron, and I've used this example before, and I put that iron into fire, the nature of iron is it is cold, it is rigid, it is heavy, but when I leave it in a very hot fire long enough and I take it out, it has now taken on all the qualities of fire. It emits heat, it emits light, and if it's hot enough, it even transforms from being uh, rigid to, to liquid or, or very malleable. This was the principle way in which people were offered the opportunity to learn how to live within this world, but connect their life intimately with this spiritual journey, this spiritual undertaking, to spiritualize one's life. I, I was asked a couple of weeks ago by a lady you know, about the similarities between what I'm talking about now and what most people understand to be Christianity. Um, and, and I'll just speak to that point for a little bit because I think a lot of people will be able to sort of relate to it. When you ask um, the majority of people that say they have respect for Lord Jesus Christ or they say they are his followers or admire his teaching, when you ask them what is the principal teaching, what is the principal thing that he spoke of, and less than 50% will get it right, which is pretty far out, but it's true, less than 50%. Most people talk about the main thing that you should do is live a kind of good life and you should love your neighbor meaning love others that you are in proximity with. And in this way, you will come to some transcendental experience. And my answer to that is actually, no, it doesn't really work that way. It sort of works from, that's sort of going the wrong, it's entering here and attempting to come out here, when what you need to do is enter here and it will automatically come out over here. He described, actually, it wasn't even his teaching. He was asked this question, since ancient times, in the, all the old books that guide us, what was the most important teaching? And his response was not a creation of his own, but he spoke to a, a, a teaching that's been around for thousands of years before him and is actually an, an integral part of the Vedas and most very ancient spiritual cultures. And it was this principle to, and he described it, he put it this way, to love the Lord thy God with your whole heart, your whole mind, and your whole being. And the second one is like that to love others or to love your neighbor like yourself.
The way people speak about this these days, really, I find it really upsetting how it's become so distorted and twisted by all kinds of new agey ideas and and over-focus on the self, like I'm the most important person in the universe and everything centers around me. And the way I want to interpret and understand things is going to make it true. And it's just like, I'm sorry, that that's not a reality. Even if someone can answer that question right, if I ask them, so what, what does this mean? What is this condition of love that is so deep and it is so profound and it is so overwhelming that not part, not some, your whole heart, your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole being is absorbed in this love. What does, what does that mean? How, how does one come to that experience? What is it, how does one experience that? How, what symptoms manifest? What, what happens in your life? And how do you live as a result of that? Do you know anybody that has attained that? Do you know a process for doing it? And it's just like, by the time you get up to there, everybody's kind of like, whoa. <laughs> you know, that's just like way far out. That's just like over the top. You know, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that. And that is actually a tremendous shame that people have become so disconnected from these amazing spiritual truths and realities. You know, these spiritual truths, they don't belong to any religion. They're not even religious. We're talking about the nature of the soul itself, your spiritual nature, and how to revive this lost, amazing, amazing condition. And the connection between the first and the second one is this. When one is able to approach and draw close to the Lord of their heart, the Supreme Soul, one has this amazing, transcendent realization that, my God, all living beings are my brothers and sisters. I have an intimate actually connection and relationship with all of them, which I have thrown out the window, I have lost, and all I'm doing is walking around looking at bodies. And when I look at bodies, I go, oh, I like that, oh, I don't like that, I like that, I don't like that, yes, I want to get close to that person, oh, no, I don't want to get close to that person. It's just a very narrow, very temporary view of things. And this spiritual experience, the result of the practice, particularly, well, not particularly, actually from karma yoga and bhakti yoga, if one is successful in this practice, it brings one to this transcendent experience 
where one is able to genuinely begin to experience this amazing ocean of, of ecstatic happiness that is manifest in this spiritual love, which automatically carries over to all others. Now, the importance, the importance of doing things for others, there is some importance. You know, from most yoga processes, they see that relationships in this world take you away from the spiritual path that you really need to be totally focused, and so that was what they did. But the path of, of karma and bhakti yoga, it's like putting the iron in the fire. If you have a relationship with somebody, you are actually fortunate. It's better that you care about someone than you don't care about anyone. If you live a life of intense selfishness, where you're just looking out for yourself, where you're using others, exploiting others for your own happiness, and you are not um, caring and committed to some reciprocation with them, this, I'm sorry, you're, you're going to have a life of tremendous unhappiness. It can't go anywhere else. It just, because it's taking you, it is so, it's, div it's completely opposed to your eternal spiritual nature. By being able to, even out of a sense of duty, care for someone, even if it is out of an obligation to be selfless and to help someone in need, or to be responsible in terms of, of a relationship. Actually, what that does, it begins to move the needle. It moves you away from this intense separation from all that is spiritual, that is the, you know, a self-centered existence, into a more compassionate and caring existence, which is so much closer to your actual spiritual nature. So even though we talked about looking for love in all the wrong places, it doesn't mean that you should then cut all relationships and connections. No, what you need to do is take relationships and connections and spiritually redirect them. And in doing that, one is able to grow spiritually one is able to have a deeper spiritual experience. You know, in the Vedic culture, in ancient times, they had certain understandings. You have responsibility and you have duty. You are not without responsibility. You have responsibility. When you become connected to someone in relationship, like in marriage or parents and children, you have a profound responsibility to these people. Your greatest responsibility is to their spiritual welfare. There was a great sage who was a king, considered an incarnation of God. His name was Rishabdev. He said, one should not become a king. One should not be a guru. One should not be a husband. One should not be a parent. 
One should not be a teacher unless you can liberate those in your care. Your greatest responsibility is their liberation, which means their, their ultimate spiritual happiness. So it was kind of like, okay, <laughs> this was a really serious approach to life, but it doesn't mean it will be a bummer. It just means we are being guided in the most wonderful way. And if we learn this process, and if we apply this process to our life, then one can have in this lifetime, even in a world of responsibility and commitment and relationship and everything, one can attain the highest spiritual realization and experience. How about that? (laughs) Does that appeal? Of course, one must learn how to do this. And the foundation, the foundation, you know, in, in, in all spiritual practice, there is this word sadhana. Sadhana refers to a regulated process or activities that you do regularly that transform you. I mean, if you want, like using the the iron and the fire example, if you put it in for two minutes and then you pull it out and you leave it out for you know a week and then you put it in for two minutes back in the fire and then you pull it out after two minutes and put it on the shelf and then you know after three weeks you're going, how come this thing's not glowing and how come it's not red hot and how come it's not emitting heat? Well, because you're not leaving it in the fire long enough. It's real simple. It's not complicated. When a person engages primarily in this process of mantra meditation. It is like we are bathing. We are bathing in an ocean of spiritual sound. And this spiritual sound will actually transform us. It will begin to change the way that we are thinking, the way that we are looking at ourselves, at others, and the way in which we look at this world in terms of what is its purpose, that will begin to change. We will begin to see with more clarity. We won't be so controlled by our desires and anger and, you know, the the real nasty negative emotions and things that tear us apart and tear everybody apart and cause so much pain. You'll be able to experience an, an increased ability to, to stand back from things and take a time out, pause. Don't just lose the plot. You will develop a growing understanding and experience of your own spiritual identity, who you really are. You're not the body. You're not your desires. That shouldn't define who you are. That's something you're going through but it doesn't define who you actually are. You can fulfill all of your desires and be incredibly unhappy, even suicidal. Coming to know our real spiritual identity is really the essence of what spiritual practice is. And this this engagement in this process of, of mantra meditation, this transcendent, the spiritual sound, transcendental sound, 
is what will transform us. It is the it is the fire to turn the iron into a fire-like object. Okay? It's long and short of it. So we will chant a little this transcendental sound. If um, you have any questions, do feel free to... Um, Ask. Don't be don't be shy. All questions are fine. Thank you.
You're very welcome. I don't know. Um, so that's our program for this evening.